This sermon, The Unstoppable Gospel, was preached by Brett Overstreet on Sunday, November 14, 2021 at Sovereign Grace Church. Here's how I would like to begin this morning. Before we read, I'd like you to ask you to think about specific names and faces of unbelievers in your life. Maybe that's a, a, a family member or a friend, maybe it's a, a coworker, maybe it's someone you have preached the gospel to faithfully for years, maybe it's somebody who, who's told you, listen, don't ever talk to me about Jesus again. Maybe it's someone who you've known, but just you've never said a word about Jesus. I'd like to ask you to, to put those names and faces in your mind, and if you're taking notes, I'd like to ask you to write those names down, because I believe the Lord wants us to be mindful of those names, those faces, because of what we're going to see in our text. I'm going to give you the big idea right out of the gate. Here's the big idea of our text this morning. God's mission to save sinners is unstoppable because it is empowered by the Spirit and centered on the message of Jesus. God's mission is To save sinners, perhaps that person you are thinking of right now that you wrote down on your paper is unstoppable, not because of you and I, not because of this church, but because of the message of Jesus and the power of the Spirit. I believe that we will see that in our text this morning. I have three points for us as we do that. First, the gospel promise, the gospel proclamation, and the gospel Power And now, if you would stand with me as we read from Acts chapter 2. Acts 2, beginning in verse 14 through 41. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams." Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass... That everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, 
I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I might not be shaken. And therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And being therefore a prophet and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Church, you may be seated and pray with me. Lord, we have already confessed our need this morning, our great need for your spirit to fill us as we hear and receive your word, and Lord, we thank you that you have given us your spirit. So I pray that as we listen, as, as you have given me the task and the privilege to preach, Lord, that, that our ears, our hearts would be open to receive what you have for us. Oh, we love you. Thank you for giving us your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, first point this morning is the gospel promise. And you'll notice that our text begins with the Apostle Peter standing among a crowd and addressing what happened just moments ago. This is what we, this is what we looked at last week, that great scene at Pentecost when, when the Spirit of God is poured out on his people and, and what happens? Everyone starts speaking in tongues. It was a monumental moment, and, and like we saw it, it really was an incredible scene. The crowd around starts to notice there's something different about these people. They, they, they can't quite figure it out, but they know something has changed. Look back at verse 13, and you'll notice there's a, there's a wide range of responses from the crowd. While many witnessed it and said they were amazed, there's some who were not convinced. And Luke records for us that they mocked them, saying they are drunk, they are filled with new wine. And we pick up in the very next verse and see Peter addressing this crowd. And he begins to preach 
sermon. And you'll notice he starts by responding to their mockery with a little bit of humor of his own. And he says, he points out the obvious, right? He says, listen, guys, they aren't drunk. It's 9 o'clock in the morning. Come on. They're not drunk. And he then goes to, to, to correct their misunderstanding of the events. You'll notice he does this by taking them back to the Old Testament book of Joel. Verse 16, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And the next six verses are from Joel 2, where we see Joel prophesied that before God comes in judgment, he would pour out his spirit on his people. This day was, was long anticipated. In fact, the group that Peter is addressing is made up primarily of devout Jews. And so many of them would have known these very words from Joel 2. So, so Peter's kind of going, they're not drunk dummies. <laughs> you knew this was going to happen. They would have been able to look back at Numbers 11 and remember that Moses longed for this day. Joel prophesied of this day, and yet when God fulfills it at Pentecost, they completely miss it. You know, I love that Peter does this, because remember where we are here. We're here at the very beginnings of the church, and he could have just told them, he could have just explained, no guys, this is God pouring out his spirit. But instead, he takes them back. He points them back to Old Testament promises, promises made by God through the prophets. You know, I thought about that. It's a reminder for us today of what we heard at the very first sermon in this series. Christianity, we we, we can look back. Christianity is based on fact. As we study the book of Acts, you know, just like Peter reminds them of the words of Joel, we, we can look at our Bibles and see promises made, and then see what promises kept, right? It's amazing. And so Peter here, he graciously reminds them of what they cannot see. This is not, this is not a morning hangover. This is the work of God fulfilling his promise, pouring out his spirit to empower his disciples like we saw a few weeks ago in Acts 1.8, right? Uh, you know, i got to be careful not to get ahead of myself here, but, but, but don't pass over this moment to celebrate the third person of the Trinity. We love to talk about Jesus. The book of Acts is about Jesus. Peter is about to make a beeline to Jesus. But as we study this book, take note of what we see all throughout the pages. We see God building his church through the empowering of the Spirit. We can't miss that. That's why Peter takes them back to the words of Joel. He doesn't want to pass over the significance of the Holy Spirit. But you'll notice he could have stopped. He could have stopped at verse 18 and proven his point. But he doesn't stop there. Notice how Peter begins to connect the dots for his listeners. He includes all the way through verse 21. And we should take note of this this morning because it helps us understand what Peter is doing here and it sets the tone for the rest of his sermon. By including verse 21, it shows us that Peter wants them to understand the events of Pentecost in light of the significance of Jesus. After all, if you skip ahead to verse 33, Peter teaches us 
that at the consummation of his death, resurrection, and ascension, it is Jesus himself who pours out the Spirit on God's people. In other words, Peter is about to pull the, 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 the classic Sunday school answer here, right? They want to know what's going on, and what does he say? Jesus, Jesus right? But, but, but look how he does this. Read verse 21 with me. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Church, verse 21 is a promise. It is a promise of salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord. It's an amazing promise, isn't it? But two things we need to notice in this verse. First, notice, notice the vast reach of this promise. Go read Joel 2 this week, and you will notice that Peter omits the final verse in Joel 2, a, a, a verse that shows this promise is for the Jewish nation. However, as redemptive history continues to unfold, we see what? Again, Acts 1.8, we see salvation move beyond Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see this, this gospel promise in verse 21 explode, don't we? It's not, it's not limited by, by race or ethnicity. It's not limited by, by region or geography. It's not limited by, by how you were raised is it? No, this gospel promise is, is so vast, so far-reaching that, that it includes anyone who calls on the name of the Lord. And church, this is what we see in the book of Acts, isn't it? We are about to see this gospel promise explode as God graciously saves sinners of every nation, tribe, and tongue. Just look at everyone who's in this room. This is Peter's purpose in drawing the listener's attention back to the words uttered by the prophet Joel. Not, not simply to explain the events at Pentecost, it certainly does that, but to show us God's promise to save helpless sinners like you and I is exploding to the ends of the earth. Here's the second thing we must see. This promise, while it is vast, it is very specific. It is for those who call upon the name of the Lord. And verse 21, this sets the tone for the rest of Peter's sermon. Verse 21 is so important. That's why I spent so much time on it. It shows a promise of salvation for those who call on the name of the Lord. And now Peter will spend the rest of his sermon showing them who that name is. And that brings us to our second point, the gospel proclamation. Because this is exactly what Peter does. He spends the next 15 verses building an argument to show them that, that Jesus is the name upon whom they must call. And I want us to pay attention to how he does this. Peter's, Peter's so methodical and intentional as he builds this argument. Look at verse 22 with me. Again, Peter addresses the crowd directly. He begins to, to preach about Jesus, but not just Jesus as a historical figure, not just Jesus as a piece of history to be studied. No, look what he does. Men of Israel, in verse 22, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, 
as you yourselves know. Peter is beginning his argument by pointing them to what? The life and the ministry of Christ. The, 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 the miracles and the wonders and the signs that we read all about in the Gospels that Christ accomplished in his earthly mission. But notice, the emphasis is on what? God's activity. Look again at verse 22. It says, a man attested to you by God. Mighty works and wonders that God did through him. In other words, Peter wants them to see that it was God, it was God who was demonstrating through the life and ministry of Jesus that Jesus is not simply another man, another prophet. No, he was his special envoy sent to carry out his redemptive purposes. Peter knows that many in this crowd were witnesses to the life and ministry of Jesus, and if they weren't, they certainly had heard about them. And so what does he do? He points to his life and ministry as more than compelling evidence that Jesus was sent of God. But then he continues in verse 23 and 24. Here Peter moves on from Christ's earthly ministry and points to what? His death and his resurrection, events that happened just weeks ago. This is all fresh on their mind. He reminds them of what? That Jesus was, was handed over and killed by lawless men. And he draws specific attention. He, look what he does. He calls them out for their role in handing Jesus over to the Roman soldiers. You know, there were probably many in this crowd that just weeks ago were in another crowd shouting, crucify him, crucify him. Peter does not excuse the human responsibility in the death of Jesus. But again, you'll notice, while human responsibility is on full display, Peter's emphasis, once again, is on what? God's sovereignty. Going back to 23, it says, this Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Even the death of Christ at the hands of lawless men was not a speed bump on God's plan. It was not a, a variable that God had to account for. No, it was God's plan. So everything they had, they had seen and they had heard about, Peter wants them to know this wasn't happenstance. This was divine orchestration. Peter wants to show them God's hand in all these events to help them see Jesus was the true Messiah they've been longing for, sent by God. But he's not done. I know we're spending a lot of time here, but Peter's not done. He takes it a step further, and look what he does. He brings even more Old Testament scripture to show this. Now Peter goes to the words of the great King David from Psalm 16. Again, words that this crowd would be familiar with, except he helps them see that these words do not apply to David, but to a descendant of David, namely Jesus. And the focus here is verse 27, which reads, For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. I think James Boyce is, is really helpful in understanding what, what is being said here. He writes this, this, this is about the decay of a body in a tomb, a decay that will not happen. But how could David say that about himself? David's body did see decay. 
And as Peter points out, his tomb is there to this day. Any person who doubted it could walk over to the tomb and dig up his bones. And so clearly, David, if that's true, David could not have been speaking of himself. In fact, Peter says, he tells him with confidence in verse 29, your great king David is dead. His bones are buried right over there. I don't know if it was right over there, but his bones are buried. You You can go see his tomb is undisturbed. These words can't apply to David. And so if David, then who? So can anybody think of someone from the line of David who these words might apply to? Jesus. And that's exactly what Peter tells us next. Look at verse 31. He foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. And so again, do you you see what Peter is doing here? Peter is mounting his case that Jesus is the true Messiah. And then the final nail in the coffin comes in the next few verses. Again, Peter uses the words of King David to show us that Jesus is the greater king. Look at verse 34. Now citing from Psalm 110, Peter moves from the death and resurrection of Christ to the ascension and exaltation. Verse 34, For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Once again, Peter shows us the true meaning of the psalm. It is Jesus, not David, who rules at the right hand of the Father. It can't be David. You want to know? Because you can go over there to his tomb and see it is undisturbed. Body decayed. No, this this speaks of a greater king. A king who has died and risen and is now reigning at the right hand of the Father. You see what Peter did there? And then look at verse 36. Peter concludes in verse 36, summarizing everything he just said. And in short, he tells them this. He says, Jesus is your true Messiah, and you have killed him. What a sermon, huh? But church, what did Peter just do? He just preached the most Christ-centered sermon in the history of sermons, didn't he? He spends 15 verses preaching about the life and the death and the resurrection and the ascension and exaltation of Christ. But why? Peter could have gone down so many other rabbit trails, some really good ones, and I would love to hear those sermons. But he doesn't, does he? He could have preached fire and brimstone. He could have have preached and just reiterated the Sermon on the Mount and all of Christ's teachings. But he doesn't, does he? No, his focus is on the person and work of Jesus Christ because verse 21, Christ is the name upon upon which we must call for salvation. Peter preaches this because he knows that Christ is the message 
of the gospel. Of course he could have gone down plenty of rabbit trails, but he doesn't because as he has the attention of thousands of unbelievers, he knows that only one message can save, and that message is the message of Christ, the great gospel proclamation. And before you say, sure, but it's not that simple. No, it is. Ask Peter. He stands before this group of unbelievers, and what does he give them? Jesus. Listen again to the words of James Boyce. He gets this so right. He says, no one can preach successfully to spiritually dead people by saying, do what Jesus tells you. So Peter does not tell them what Jesus said, but instead declares what Jesus did for them. He preaches the cross and resurrection. Listen, church, there is no debating the importance of Christ's teaching. We have four whole books in the New Testament that just give us rich Christ's teaching over and over. And those should be studied faithfully and lived out faithfully. Go study the Sermon on the Mount. But the gospel is not a list of rules to be followed. The gospel is not a five-step program to be completed. The gospel is a proclamation of the message of Jesus. Listen, before the gospel is a command to be obeyed, it is a message to be received Before the gospel can be lived out in our lives, it must be beheld in the person and work of Jesus Christ and nowhere else. So let me ask you a question. What are your rabbit trails? What are your rabbit trails? As you, as you engage with others... Are you quicker to tell them what Jesus says to do or what he's done? As you engage with others, are are you quicker to tell them what you do or what Jesus has done? And listen, our rabbit trails can be innocent, can't they? We love to talk about homeschooling, We love to talk about conservative politics. We love to to share our convictions about COVID and vaccines. We, we, We like to get vocal about moral issues in our society like abortion and transgenderism and church, rightfully so. But none of these are the gospel. Not, not, listen, they might be good. They might be helpful. They might be right. They might be the proper response to God's word, but they are not the message of the gospel. They are not what Peter talks about in verse 21, the name that saves. So what message are you proclaiming with your words, with your life? What are your rabbit trails that stray from the only message that can save? What message are you proclaiming with your life? 
And listen, it's important for us to answer those questions. Because in the next five verses, we see what happens when the message of Christ is proclaimed and the Spirit of God is at work. Look at how the crowd responds to Peter's Christ-centered message in verse 37. It says, And they were what? Cut to the heart and asked, What shall we do? What happens, church? They hear this message. and They begin to, to feel their need. They, they begin to see the, the part they played in the killing of Jesus. They begin to see their sin. They realize something is wrong with, between them and God. That language of cut to the heart shows us their conscience was pierced by this message. There is a genuine conviction of sin that happens here, isn't there? As the message of Christ is proclaimed and the Spirit of God now poured out by Christ is at work, then, then conviction of the sin in the hearts of unbelievers is what takes place. If you remember, Jesus told the disciples that this would happen, didn't he? If, if you go to John 16, verse 7, should be up on the screen. It says, nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and, and righteousness and judgment. Jesus is speaking about the Spirit here. In John 16, we, we see Jesus tell the disciples he will send the Spirit. In our text, verse 33, we see Jesus pouring out the Spirit on his people. And what does he do? He brings conviction concerning our sin. This is all happening Right here in this text, church, the gospel message is being proclaimed, the, the spirit of God is at work, and sinners are cut to the heart. You know, think about your own testimony. Think back to that moment when, when the spirit of God convicted you of your sin, and you felt deep in your soul your need for Jesus. I thought about mine this week and I was just moved to gratefulness and praise that the spirit was at work in my heart convicting me of my sin because this is what happens when the spirit of God breaks through our stony, cold, dead hearts and helps us see our sin. And notice, notice how Peter answers their question. They ask, what shall we do? How are they to respond to this conviction from the Holy Spirit? Peter says, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. Peter is, is calling them to repentance, isn't he? What, what is repentance? Repentance is, is a turning away from and forsaking your sin and turning to Christ. In the original, that, that word, word carries the meaning of change of mind. Genuine repentance recognizes that our sin is an offense to God and in turn sees Christ for who he is and in faith 
forsakes sin and now lives for Christ. Repentance is only possible through what? The conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's what we see clearly here. But we also see that, that repentance is necessary for forgiveness. Listen to how Kent Hughes explains this. He writes, it's important for us to see the close connection between repentance and forgiveness. Because while no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness in the sight of God, that's important, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. I love that. Saved souls are repentant souls. And listen, this is not our own doing. It is not absent of the work of the Spirit. No, like we just read from Mr. Hughes, our repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our life. Repentance is a a gift from God, and genuine repentance comes only as the Spirit of God, the Helper, convicts us of our sin. And what happens? Our lives are transformed. We're going to see just how transformed these lives were next week. And what else does he say? He says, he says, be baptized. Now listen, there are some who would would take this to mean that baptism is a requirement, a prerequisite for salvation, but I don't believe that is Peter's intention here. He commands them to be baptized. But what is baptism? Baptism is an outward acknowledgement of an inward transformation. I want to bring in the help of our statement of faith and just read to you how we define baptism. Should be on the screen. Our statement of faith says, Baptism is an initiatory, unrepeated sacrament for those who come to faith in Christ that pictures their remission of sins and union with Christ in his death and resurrection. Through immersion in water in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the believer publicly proclaims his faith in Christ and signifies his entrance into the body of Christ. Although commanded by Christ and a true means of grace, grace is not so inseparably tied to baptism that no one can be saved without it, asks the thief on the cross, or that anyone who is baptized is thereby saved. In other words, baptism does not bring about the transformation. Only the Spirit of God can do that, but it is absolutely a public expression of one's commitment to Christ, one that is commanded by Christ himself. And it was so helpful just to think about, you know, what was at stake for these people? Again, devout Jews. If baptism, you know, wasn't a private ceremony, it was a public acknowledgement. So Peter's telling him, let this inward transformation be witnessed and proclaimed in your life. And you'll notice Peter roots them back in the promise of 21, verse 21. He said, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. They now identified not with the traditions and the ceremonial laws of the past, but with Jesus, the true Messiah, who brings salvation through the power of the Spirit at work in the hearts of sinners. Their hope was no longer found in purification laws and animal sacrifices. No, 
He was found in the name of Jesus who just weeks ago they crucified. Thought about that. That that probably led to some awkward dinners as they went home. See mom and dad and grandpa. Tell them what what they believe. So church, let's be reminded that calling on the name of the Lord is not just an acknowledgement that Jesus was a historical person. It's not just an acknowledgement that, that Jesus was sent by God. Calling on the name of the Lord is acknowledging the life and death and resurrection and lordship of Jesus and responding to that in light of our own sinfulness. And when we do that, By the grace of God, this is all of the grace of God, our only appropriate response is to repent. To confess our desperate need for forgiveness and to call upon the name of the Lord who brings forgiveness. We have nothing else, do we? Where else can we go? And listen, I want to make a, a plea to a specific group of people this morning. If you are here and, 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 and you're listening and you do not know Jesus, but as you're listening to this, you can identify with these people and, and you, you, you're cut to the heart. Let me just encourage you. That very well may be the Spirit of God at work convicting you of your sin. And let, 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 let me encourage you Let me graciously implore you toward repentance. To to, to repent of your sin, to forsake what you have been living for, and turn your life to Jesus. Because as you do this, God promises to forgive your sins, pour out his spirit upon you, and empower you to live for him. Don't leave here today If you are cut to the heart this morning, do not leave here today without talking to someone. Because this is the amazing work of the Spirit is what we see in our text, isn't it? This is exactly what we see. Peter reminds them once again of the significance of the message of Jesus and that the gospel is exploding in verse 39. And then we get to the end of our text in verse 41 and Luke records for us that 3,000 souls were saved. Take note of what is happening here. The gospel promise in verse 21 is fulfilled right before their very eyes as the gospel proclamation of Christ goes out from Peter's mouth and the gospel power, the spirit, convicts and saves sinners. It is all right here, modeled for us in Acts 2, in the very earliest of the church. It's amazing, isn't it? It's right there. And if we understand this text, it, where it takes place in redemptive history and, and where we see Acts going, that, then we truly see that the unstoppable gospel is exploding to the ends of the earth. Church, 2,000 years later, in a dry desert in southern Arizona, here you are. Here you are. Receiving the the gospel message week in and week out. 
living out the gospel with your lives, with one another. Listen, do you want to know why I love this church? It's not because of the coffee bar, though I'm so glad we have that. It's not because my dad is a pastor here. It's not because all my friends go here. We've seen friends come and go, and we love our friends dearly. No, it is because the gospel of Jesus is preached faithfully. The gospel of Jesus is lived out faithfully, and the gospel is celebrated faithfully. This church is not perfect, we know that, but it is centered on the message of Jesus, the only message that can save. So as we leave here this morning, I I want us to see the hope that this gives us for today. Those who have been called by God's mission have been called to God's mission. And that means if you're a Christian here this morning, you have a part to play as the unstoppable gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. And I want to leave us with, with two handles as we leave. The first is this. Faithfully preach Christ. Listen, like, like Peter, our message must be centered on Jesus. If we stray from that message, we stray from the gospel. Paul, what does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 15? I deliver to you as of first importance. Christ, was, Christ died for our sins. I asked earlier, what are your rabbit trails? We need to know what these are so that we don't stray from the message doesn't mean that every time you tell someone about Jesus, you have to have three Old Testament passages and you have to go from life, ministry, death, resurrection, ascension, exaltation, and walk them. No. But it does mean we must faithfully preach the Christ of the scriptures. Have you guys seen those shirts? Jesus is my homeboy. Jesus is my homie. We can't preach the Jesus is my homeboy gospel. When Peter, when they are cut to the heart after Peter reminds them of their role in the death of Christ, I don't think they went out and started a Jesus is my homeboy t-shirt shop. No, we must faithfully preach why Jesus came. Why he had to die. And call others to repentance. Church, your job is not to convert the person in front of you. Your job is to faithfully preach Christ crucified to that person. Listen to, listen to Mark, Mark Dever. He, he says, says it like this. The Christian call to evangelism is a call not simply to persuade people to make decisions, but rather to proclaim, them, to, proclaim to them the good news of salvation in Christ, to call them to repentance, and to give God the glory for regeneration and conversion. We don't fail in our evangelism if we faithfully present the gospel and yet no one is converted. We fail only if we don't faithfully present the gospel at all. Church, our part in God's mission, your part as you leave here, is to faithfully preach Christ to the lost and call them to repentance. And as we do that, we must fully trust in the Spirit. Here is our hope as we proclaim Jesus. 
The power to save sinners does not rest on us, does it? It doesn't rest on our abilities, how eloquent we can speak. It's not about having the latest and greatest evangelism techniques and process. No. Peter was a thrice Christ-denying fisherman. There was nothing special or eloquent about him. But, but, But Peter stood up. He gave them Jesus, and the Spirit of God did work to convict the hearts, and people responded, just like we saw promised by Jesus in John 16. Church, because of this, we can have confidence that when we stand up courageously and share the message of Christ and humbly call people to repentance, God will save sinners. God's mission for the advancement of the gospel to the ends of the earth is unstoppable, not because of you and I, not because we can eloquently say everything that Peter says here, but because we have the message of Christ and the Spirit of God is at work. That's our hope. That's our hope as we leave here. I want to end with this. Look, look once more at me or with me at verse 41. You know, we saw one Christ-centered, spirit-empowered sermon and 3,000 souls were saved. It's pretty easy to want to focus on that number there, but that's not the point. God may use you, he may use this church to save 10,000. He may use you to save one. Here's the point. God is on mission and God loves to save sinners. And so we can leave here armed with that saving message and empowered by the Spirit, know that God, know, knowing that God is strong enough to save. Strong enough to save even that person that you wrote down 40 minutes ago. That, that, that first person, those first two, three people that, that came into your mind. I'm going to ask you to, 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 to think about those people again. Because I want to close by praying for boldness to faithfully preach Jesus to them this week knowing that our trust is not in our abilities, not in our eloquence, but in the Spirit of God to convict hearts.